All right, as you're sitting, you can grab your Bibles and meet me in John chapter 20. Gospel of John chapter 20. Grab your Bibles or your phones or your devices and you can meet me there. And uh, it is great to be here on Easter Sunday morning. We uh, know from our experience that that's not always an option for us to gather together. So we will rejoice when we can and be just grateful uh, for how far we have come and that we can be together today as we celebrate. Here at Meadowbrook Church, we have chosen a theme for the year, and we have said that 2022 is going to be a year of pursuing peace. And so we are looking as a church in our teaching and in our practices to find the peace that is available to us, that God has given given to us, learning how to remain and rest in that peace and also give and, and receive that peace with one another as brothers and sisters and also with the world around us. So peace is our theme, uh, which works out well on Easter Sunday because in the whole incarnation, death on the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of that is happening to bring us into peace with God. Scripture says that through Jesus, through his cross, through his resurrection, the message that God has sent out to the world is be reconciled to God. Come back to God. There is forgiveness available. Come back into relationship with him. And so Sunday becomes the pinnacle of all of that. And so I stand here today, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you stand here today upon the conviction that Jesus Christ actually is alive. That that is not just a theological idea. That's not just something that we've read in a book. That is something that has profoundly impacted our lives and changed us and is changing us into different people. It is not just that uh, we have a wonderful teacher that we can be inspired by. There are lots of those in this world. But we actually have a savior that we've encountered. We actually have a living Savior who we have experienced. And so we are celebrating the resurrection today, everything that Jesus did for us to bring us back to God. So as we get ready to jump into our text today in John chapter 20, just a reminder, we have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca. If you have any questions about the message at all, you can shoot them over there. We always take time to respond to those things. So let's take a look at our text. John chapter 20, we're actually going to start a bit later in the chapter, starting in verse 19. So in the early part of John chapter 20, uh, there is the empty tomb. There are the ladies going to the tomb. Mary Magdalene goes there and sees the resurrected Lord. So we're fast-forwarding past that part, and we're jumping in on verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, Sunday night, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, 
Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Thomas, doubting Thomas, what a name, eh, to get saddled with. Your whole, your whole legacy uh, wrapped up in this phrase, doubting Thomas, from this story. The other apostles believe, and Thomas says, well, I'm not going to believe until I see. And we miss the part that the apostles just saw, right? Like they saw, and that's why they believed. Thomas wasn't there, misses out on it, and says, I need to see. Uh, and, and so he gets saddled with this nickname. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. But as the story unfolds, there's important things for us to, again, just to, to learn or maybe relearn, uh, be refreshed in this morning. Uh, so we're just going to walk through our text today. So first couple of verses, on the evening of the first day of the week. So Sunday night, Jesus rose that morning. All of the, the drama at the tomb has happened. Um, on the evening of that first day of the week, the disciples are together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders. Um, it's easy on Resurrection Sunday to kind of forget how crazy the last couple of days have been, right? The just one week before Jesus had come into Jerusalem on the donkey with the crowd shouting, Hosanna, hallelujah, God has come, salvation has come. And then as the week unfolds, things de- deteriorate very quickly and things get so bad that when Jesus is arrested in the garden, the apostles all bail. They all run for their lives. And, uh, and as much as you'd say, well, yeah, nice friends, thanks a lot. Uh, at the same time, it's a scary time, right? There's, there's a, a rage in the air towards this Jesus. And so the apostles are in hiding. They are hiding for their lives. They are worried uh, that as their leader has died, they might be next. They could be next on the list for crucifixion. And so they are hanging out. The doors are locked. Jesus somehow is able to be there. He comes and he stands amongst them and he says, peace be with you. So Jesus is not confined by, by normal rules, obviously, as is proven by the resurrection. But I love that he shows up and the first thing he says to them is peace, peace, peace be yours. In a fearful, anxious time, Jesus comes and says, peace. When it looked like their whole world and universe had fallen apart, Jesus stands in their presence and says, peace. And if we truly believe that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and I don't know about you guys, but I believe that, then that means Jesus does that still today. Jesus stands in our midst and looks at our fear and looks at our doubt and looks at our anxiety and he stands amongst us and he says the word peace. He is here to speak peace into our soul. And so as Jesus comes with that blessing of peace, shalom, peace be with you, he shows them his hands and he shows them his side. And this is kind of interesting. It's fascinating because the resurrection cannot be anything but a miracle, right? There is a body that has died and for a heart that has stopped, for a brain that has shut down, for lungs that are no longer working, God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, reignites that brain, restarts that heart, fills those lungs with the breath of life again, and Jesus comes back. It is miraculous. It is undeniably miraculous. And yet... Somehow Jesus, for some reason, is also still bearing the marks of Calvary. His hands have the holes in them. His feet have the holes in them. Where the spear pierced his side, that mark is still there. 
Last year, we walked through the book of Revelation, you might remember. And when the apostle John is, is given his vision of heaven in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, he sees God seated on the throne. He sees the lamb seated on the throne. But the lamb that he sees seated, scripture says, uh, was a lamb who looked like it had been slain. That, that Jesus in heaven still bears the marks of Calvary. Jesus resurrected still bears the marks of Calvary. And I think very likely the reason God did that was to just demonstrate and prove uh, Jesus didn't just pass out on the cross or fall into a coma, that he really had died. There really had been a spear that pierced his side. There was something that had happened that you could not live through, and yet here he is alive. Here he is alive regardless. But let's allow ourselves just to in the best possible way, let our minds get blown again by the fact that we now worship a God who has scars. We worship a God with scars. And you might have scars on your body. I have a few scars on my body and just, you know, surgery over here and, you know, little accident over here and cut myself over there and burn myself over here. Um, it sounds weird when you list them all in a row like that. I sit in an office most of the day. It's not that crazy. But some stuff's happened from time to time in my life. And so you probably have some scars if you lived for a while. And, and there are these, you know, things that are there forever that remind you of something that hurt, right? Our scars are, are permanent reminders of suffering, of something that we have been through. They are permanent reminders of pain. The worst scar I have in my body is a big, ugly one on my elbow. I broke my elbow a number of years ago, and so they needed a surgery to fix it, and they put a, a pin in it, and they put it all back together, and then, this will sound gross, the pin started working its way out of my bone and poking through my skin, and so they had to do another surgery and open it all up and rip it all open again and tie it all up again, um, and they told me when they like finished it up, this is like 20 years ago almost, they said, that scar is going to fade, and what a load that was. No, still there, still ugly, still large. And so, you know, that was a painful season. And, and the surgeon who did the elbow surgery said, oh, the elbow is the most painful thing you can break, just so you know. And I'm like, I, I didn't need to know that. I know what I'm experiencing. But it, it hurt for a long time, and it took a good six to eight months until the pain was gone, and I was kind of back to normal after all of it. And so we have scars in our life, and the scars all point to pain somewhere, right? We, we had a C-section, or we you know, got into an accident, or we cut ourselves, or whatever, and the scars remain there, and they mean that we suffered. There, there is, this old saying is that every scar has a story. Right? And sometimes I remember being in a men's group once and, and someone noticed my scar and they wanted to know the story. And then guys started lifting their shirts and showing their own scars and everyone had a story. Right? Here's a car accident I was in. Here was an accident at work. Here's where a saw got away from me. Everyone had a story. Every scar tells a story. And the story that the scar tells is that there has been pain and suffering involved. And the fact that we worship Jesus as God and we don't, there's no mistaking that for us as followers of Jesus. Jesus is not just Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the image of the invisible God. He takes the invisible God and he makes God visible to us in human form. Jesus is God. Jesus has scars. We worship a God with scars, which means we worship a God who suffered. We worship a God who took on pain. 
We worship a God that struggled. We worship a God that has his own story of what pain and suffering and struggling in this life looks like. In the world of the days when Jesus walked the earth, uh, the whole sort of known Roman world, they had quite a range of gods that they worshipped. Greek gods, Roman gods. Uh, Greek gods had kind of run things in their worldview for a while, and then the Roman gods were kind of taken over. But there was this wide range of gods, small g, in heaven, and they were all kind of with a different agenda. And thank the Lord we don't serve these gods, because they were the worst. They were just the worst. And the gods fought with each other and argued, and there were rivalries, and, you know, this, this god uh, was called the most beautiful of all the goddesses, and that made the other female gods jealous, and so they tried to take her down. And the things that they would do to fight each other was use human beings like pawns, basically, and, and use them against each other. And then what would happen is you would say, like, well, I don't want to make Zeus mad, so I'd offer a sacrifice to Zeus, and then that would make the god of war mad, and then he would smite me with a plague of some kind. And so you, there was no way to make them all happy. And when you read their stories, you're like, you know what? They just sound an awful lot like us, really. <laughs> they just sound very, very human. And they were all, you know, they were all like in relationships with each other and cheating on each other. And, and Earth became kind of the battleground for their games. And sometimes they, in the mythology, would uh, disguise themselves and come down to Earth. And uh, if they did, it was because they were trying to get their own agenda done. They were trying to get their own needs met. And they were always angry, and they were always petty, and they were always jealous. And they, they really taught uh, through their, their religion, um, you know, the gods were so far above us that the gods roll their eyes at humanity, like these weak, fleshy humans uh, the gods are, are just kind of laughing at us, and even though they'll do good things for us sometimes, it's always with an agenda, like they're just trying to get their own agenda done. And it must have just been exhausting, like just to, to try and keep track of it all and to, to be aware that if you try to please this god, you make that god mad, and just the stress of that. And then, you know, so much of what you went through in life was, I must have made one of them mad, and I don't know how, and I don't know why, and just the struggle of trying to keep it all straight and then as Jesus comes, it's so dramatically different because when Jesus comes, it's, I'm coming for you, right? I'm not coming to serve my own needs. I'm not coming to get what I want. I am coming for you. And really, I'm coming because I love you. And where the other gods were above us all and rolled their eyes at how weak and mortal we were, Jesus embraces that same weakness. Jesus embraces that same mortality. Jesus doesn't scorn it and dismiss it. Jesus actually walks into it. And Jesus actually chooses the path of pain and chooses the path of suffering. And he does that because he loves us so ridiculously much. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's how we know the very definition of love. So Jesus chooses in his love the path of pain and suffering for our sake. Centuries before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah said, this is what the Messiah will be all about. Isaiah 53, 3-6. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, a man of sorrows, and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. He chose the path of pain. He chose the path of struggle. He chose the path of suffering. He took on scars out of his great love for us. And however you are viewing God, and we are, uh, the, the spiritual journey really, a big part of it is learning more and more about God. So we all probably view God a little bit differently. We're constantly wanting to get into the word to learn more and, and learn together and learn from other people. Uh, we are constantly growing in our understanding of who he is. But if your understanding of God is not centered around the fact that God is love and he loves loves you more than you can possibly imagine, then your theology needs to adjust to get to that place. Whatever love you feel, the purest love that you have ever felt for another human being can't touch how big the love of God is for you, as wonderful as yours is. The greatest love that you have ever felt from someone else, as wonderful as that is, cannot touch the vastness of how much God loves you. Paul prayed in the Ephesians, uh, for the Ephesian church in Ephesians 3. He just said, I pray, I pray that you, being rooted and established in his love, will have the power to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of God for you, and that you might know this love that surpasses knowledge. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Our love has a very clear picture that Jesus died for us. That's how much he loved you. That's how much he loved me. He did that for us. Back to our text, verse 21 and 23. Jesus is talking to the apostles. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. That's the second time. He just said peace, the blessing of peace. He brings the blessing of peace again. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So the blessing of peace comes. And really, uh, in a way, this is kind of a lot of the gospel in a nutshell. Right? Jesus saying, the Father has sent me. I have come from heaven. The, the incarnation, I am here. And as that happens, as he has sent me, I'm sending you out to share this good news. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third part. The, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the one by which we experience God now. He is the one who dwells with us and shows us who God is and, and encounters us with God's presence and gives us God's voice and makes God's word come alive. It is uh, crucially important that we know and are familiar with the Holy Spirit. The prayer for us always, we pray for this for this church all the time. Father, fill us again and again and again and again with your Holy Spirit so that we can know you. You're not meant to just have an idea that God is kind of far off and you'll get to see him one day. The Holy Spirit brings God to us right now, right now. So even as I am preaching today, again, receive the Holy Spirit. Be refilled with him today 
as we spend time together in the word and in his presence. The Holy Spirit is coming as the Holy Spirit is coming. Weird little line at the end here. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Uh, What exactly is that one about? Our Catholic friends would take that and they would say that, well, that's where the priest that you go confess to actually literally has the power to forgive your sins. And and I get how they get there from there. Um, We would disagree with them on that. God forgives sins, we believe. We don't have the power to forgive sins on God's behalf. Only God can do that. Probably because it's all tied into the gospel and the sending and the Holy Spirit, it's probably meaning that they're talking about the gospel message, that you're going to be sent out by the power of the Spirit. You're going to bring the message of how to get your sins forgiven through Jesus. You're going to go share that message with the world. And if people receive that message, their sins will be forgiven. If they don't receive that message, their sins will not be forgiven. So apparently one guy is not at the party when all this goes down. You know, they talk about fear of missing out. Have you ever been like, oh, I missed out on that big party? Thomas isn't there as all of this is going on. He was at the store maybe or just sleeping in. But now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. Thomas is skeptical. He said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Here's what's fascinating about that for me. Thomas hasn't seen him yet and yet somehow also knows there are going to be scars if Jesus is alive. The thing that the apostles have already experienced, Thomas is aware that if that is a reality, I need to see that. And so Thomas is there and saying, Okay, I I am struggling with this. I have something that I really need to see and encounter before I'm going to go all in on this. And from there, he gets saddled with this nickname, Doubting Thomas. Um, Earlier in John's Gospel, in John chapter 11, uh, Jesus and the apostles were, they were often kind of on the run because people wanted to kill him. And so there was a a moment where they're going to go and visit uh, Lazarus, who is sick, um, and they have to go close to Jerusalem to do that, and that's a dangerous thing to do. They, they're getting really close to the people who want Jesus dead, and probably the apostles dead as well. So when Jesus says in John 11, we're going to go closer to the city, Thomas is the one who stands up and says to the rest of the apostles, hey, let's go with him. If we die with him, we die with him, but let's all go and let's all lay down our lives with Jesus. So this poor guy, right? He, he had bravery. He had faith. He was willing to lay his life down. Um, he was saying, let's go. And if we die with him, we die with him. Uh, Thomas would die for Jesus many years later. Um, and yet, because of this story, he gets saddled as this guy who's full of doubt. And, and if you're like me, I try to see where I'm at in these Bible stories. And if it's you or me, maybe we feel exactly the same way, right? Your friends come and say, hey, that person who died is actually alive. You might have a moment of doubt. That might not be totally unreasonable. And so poor Thomas, you know, we, we need to call him like, you know, self-sacrificing Thomas or something. Like he was ready to die for Jesus. He, this is the story that overshadows that one, unfortunately. But we also miss the fact that when Jesus does come and see him shortly, uh, Jesus lets him do the exact thing that he needed. The exact thing that Thomas said, I, I need to see the nails. I need to put my hand in the side. When Jesus shows up, Jesus says, okay, come here, come and do it. While pushing him towards faith, for sure, and and encouraging him towards faith, there needs to be 
a place for doubt, a place for questions, a place for struggle in the walk with Jesus. There needs to be a place for that. When we don't let people have a place for that, we just get so black and white. And then when someone does have a moment of doubt, sometimes they walk away from Jesus altogether because they've never been told, you know what? Doubt's normal sometimes and asking questions is good. You know who is never, ever, 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 ever afraid of a tough question? Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. People ask him questions all the time. He was always available for questions. The toughest stuff, the theological stuff, the biblical stuff, the big questions. Jesus was available to talk about these things. He is not afraid of a tough question at all. And so we need to have some room there. There are seasons where there is doubt more than faith. There are seasons where we struggle. Uh, Jesus is, is encouraging Thomas, saying, all right, Thomas, let's move towards faith. Let's leave the doubt behind, but also meets him right where he's at. He meets him in his moment of doubt and blesses him in there. And so as we, we you know, are, are wrestling with our own questions, maybe, or, or working through stuff, we're always wanting to move closer to Jesus, really. That's, that's the main thing. We're wanting to move closer to faith. We're wanting to move deeper in our understanding. But if we create a place where no one's ever allowed to doubt or ever allowed to ask a question, I just don't think that's what we see in the Gospels and how Jesus engages with other people. There is room for that as we are seeking to draw closer to him. So a few days go by, verse 26 and 27. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. So the doors were locked. Again, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. So we're moving towards faith. There's a gentle rebuke there. Let's move towards faith. Um, but also, again, meets Thomas right where he's at. And by the way, sidebar, there's that peace word again, right? Three times in a row, Jesus shows up, and the blessing that he brings is peace. There is peace from God here for you. And so as Thomas is there finally with the group when this happens, Jesus says, all right, come on. This is what you, you needed to see. Jesus meets him in his doubt. Um, what's interesting here as well is that even as Jesus' body bears the pain of Calvary, bears the marks, his hands and, and his sides still bear uh, the, those scars, those stories of pain and struggle and suffering, uh, they don't hurt anymore, right? They, they're not hurting him. They're, they're not causing pain anymore. And that's the other part about scars, right? Big ugly scar on my elbow doesn't hurt anymore. The elbow doesn't hurt anymore. The skin doesn't hurt anymore. It hurt a lot at the time, but it doesn't hurt anymore. We worship a God with scars, and that means that our God has suffered, but we also worship a God with scars, and that means that suffering has been overcome. Because every scar has a story of suffering, but it's more than that. Every scar is a story of suffering overcome. That, that, that pain that was there is not there anymore. That thing that was hurting has been healed and has been redeemed. And it's easy in our kind of North American church culture emphasis on blessing and on victory that we can get a, an unhealthy and I would say an unholy view of suffering. I've even heard it said, well, Jesus suffered at the cross, so you don't have to suffer at all in this life. And we would say, well, no, we believe that certainly in light of eternity, that that is what is happening at the cross. There's not actually a promise that you will never suffer in this life. Actually, Jesus says, you're actually, if you're going to follow me, you're going to pick up a cross and follow after me. And part of that means struggle and suffering. That's just part of what this life is. 
But the glory of the resurrection, the glory of Jesus' scars, the glory of what we celebrate on a day like today is that the pain, the suffering, even death itself gets swallowed up ultimately in healing and in redemption and in victory. That the pain that we feel gets moved towards healing. That the struggle that we are going through gets redeemed. That even death itself gets turned upside down completely. That we are restored and we are redeemed. I remember when, uh, when our kids were young and just new, new parent, learning it all for the first time, uh, talking to a friend of mine who was a counselor, and I just said, like, oh, you know, so one of my kids, like, they just, they, they get upset, they skin their knee or whatever, and they just, it takes them a really long time to calm down. And this was news to me and yet made so much sense and was completely eye-opening. The friend said to me, when a child is in pain... They haven't learned yet that that pain's going to go away. So all they know is they're in pain, but they think that pain's going to be there forever. And I went, oh, wow, okay, well, that makes sense, because I know I, you know, I stub my toe, it's going to hurt for a few minutes, and then it's going to get better, right? A lifetime of experience has taught me that that's the way that that is going to go. But kids don't understand that yet. So when they're sick and they're throwing up, they don't realize that that's not going to be the way they are forever. They just think this is life now. And I go, oh, no wonder they're overreacting. What a horrifying thought that you're just going to be there forever. As we get older, as we understand life, we understand this stomach flu is going to go away, right? I'm miserable now. I will be less miserable tomorrow. Kids don't have that understanding. I would argue as grown-ups, we don't always have that understanding about stuff that's going on in our soul. The exhaustion, the, the bitterness, the pain, the heartache, the disappointment, the grieving. Like we, we can get into a sense of like this is how it's always going to be. This heaviness I'm carrying, this is just life. I'm always going to be carrying this. This sadness that I'm carrying, it's just it's always going to feel that way. And this, listen, that is the exact opposite of resurrection hope. Resurrection hope is that whatever we are carrying, whatever we are going through, whatever has scarred us in this life, whatever pain we are going through will be resurrected. It will be redeemed. It will be restored. Scars don't hurt anymore. Healing comes. Redemption comes. Restoration comes. We serve a God with scars, and that means we serve a God who suffered. But it doesn't just mean we serve a God who suffered. We serve a God who suffered and overcame. And the promise to us in Jesus is that our own pain, our own struggles, our own suffering will be overcome. Scars don't hurt. Every scar, the reason when I was at that men's group and all the men were showing off their scars and pulling up their shirts and showing off things was because it's not just a story of suffering. It's a story of victory. It's a story of overcoming. It's a story of I've been through something hard, but I'm still here. I'm still ticking. I'm still alive. I have overcome. That pain is no longer there. I have this reminder that tells me I'm an overcomer all the time. And the promise of resurrection is that everything will be swallowed up in victory in Jesus. That's the promise over and over and over again in Scripture. Thomas is rightly blown away. Verse 28, Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God which is a phrase we see often in Scripture when someone sees God do something amazing, and it's just a worship, whoa, my Lord and my God, this is real. And Jesus told them, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, uh, that's you and me. That's you and me. 
and everybody who did not witness Jesus face to face. You sometimes wonder, how did the apostles endure the persecution and go through everything they went through? And they go, well, they had an added advantage of they got to see those holes in his hands, right? They actually got to see him face to face. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And it's easy to hold apostles up, and we certainly should honor them and, and follow their example and their teaching. But to go, wow, the apostles, like just so blessed by God, so favored. They got to see all these things. I don't know how to read this any other way other than to say that you and I are actually more blessed than the apostles, according to the word of the Lord. You're more blessed than the apostles because you haven't seen face to face, and yet you have believed anyway. You have trusted in him anyway. Peter says this, 1 Peter 1, 6 to 9, in all this, in all the struggles of life, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed, when Christ returns. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Every time we come into worship, right? We sang that first song today. There was joy in the house, right? There's excitement. There's a stirring of the spirit. The, the worship is loud and celebratory. That's us. We are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy. Even though we haven't seen him, we know something is going on. Even though we haven't seen him, we are convinced fully of his reality. And so even though there is a distance right now by his spirit, we get a taste of heaven right now, and we continue on, we push on, we persevere, trusting that every hurt along the way is going to be healed and redeemed and swallowed up in victory. Last verse, 30 to 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Again, just a great snapshot uh, of the point of the gospel. Scripture is not everything that God has ever done. It's everything we need, everything we need to know. But it is there to point you to Jesus. These stories are here. The, the words are recorded. It is there that you would trust, that you would have faith in Jesus, that you would see who Jesus is, and that there would be something in you that says, I I'm following him. I, I believe this. It's there to bring us to faith. Even if we haven't seen him face to face, God's word brings us there and points us there. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done. We worship a God with scars. We worship a God with scars. We worship a God who was loving enough to suffer for our sake and yet strong and mighty to save at the same time. Loving enough to take the abuse that would leave the scars on his body for all eternity, apparently. And yet powerful enough to overcome that suffering and offer that invitation to us as well. As you walk with me, as you follow me, you too will overcome. And it doesn't mean we get a free pass on suffering in this life. We will. We will struggle and suffer through this life. That is part of what this life is. The promise is healing, restoration, and redemption for us who are grabbing a hold of Jesus, who overcame everything, including death itself. In our year of pursuing peace, there is the peace that God offers. We see it three times in this passage. Jesus comes and says, there's peace. When your world has fallen apart, there is peace. When there's 
fear and danger all around you, there's peace. When there's threat of bodily harm, there is peace. When you're full of doubt and anxiety, there is peace. There is peace available in him. Receive the Holy Spirit. Be refilled with him today and receive the peace of God. There is peace there. There is peace in our suffering. There is peace in the victory as Jesus heals and redeems and restores us. That is what we celebrate in resurrection here on earth and in into, all the way into eternal life as we follow after him. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to close in a few minutes. We always like to end with worship just because we like to leave focusing on him. Let's give him the gratitude, the worship he deserves, and then we'll close in prayer.